All right. Everybody find yourself a nice seat. Get comfy. I love seeing you guys greeting one another and um, just chatting and make sure you stay after the service. There's plenty of time for that. Right now we're going to dive into God's word and let me, um, let me pray as we get started. Father, we, we really are thankful to be here. We're thankful to be your children. We're thankful that we, we get to worship your son, Jesus, and uh, you are worthy, God. There's nothing we could bring that you're not worthy of. We could never exceed what you deserve, and we love that about you. We love that uh, there's just an endless amount of praise that you're worthy of, and so we'll keep on bringing it knowing that you are worthy of that. And God, now that we turn our attention to your word, we ask that uh, you would bring clarity, that you would bring knowledge, understanding, wisdom, all these things would just jump out of the pages and into our hearts so that we might be able to honor you in the way that we walk in life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, here we go. We are launching into the second half of the book of Ephesians and the whole second half of the book really falls under that phrase that Paul says at the beginning of the chapter when he says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And uh, everything in the rest of the book is basically him saying, and here's the way you should walk in this area, and here's the way you should walk in that area. And um, yes, we've been called into the family of God. We've been saved by believing in Jesus Christ. And now it's, it's, it's what's next. And then, um, you know, when we started this series and we called it Grace and Glory, I, I mentioned this sentence and just wanted to remind you guys of this. This is why it's called Grace and Glory. We're, we're saying that this book shows us grace in us grace through us for the praise of his glory. That's the idea behind grace and glory. And when you're called, you're, you, that's, God, that's God's grace in you. He's called you into his family, but then it's grace through you. And that's really what we're getting into now in the second half of the book is how is God's grace gonna flow through us and the reason for it all is for the praise of his glory. And, and you know, two sermons ago, we talked about how the power to do that, the power to walk in that manner, is only found in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are not going to be able to do that on our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit to do it. And then last week, Pastor Rory kicked us off with, in chapter 4, talking about maintaining unity in the family of God. So uh, to start tonight, I wanted to do a little illustration. Landon, can you hop up here? Run, run, run. We are waiting for you. Let's hear it for Landon. Come on. A little bit of encouragement. <laughs> okay, so here, here's the, here, come up here. Here's the, the question I want to ask. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Right here. here we go. Um, the question I'm asking is, why is unity so important, right? Because, you know, Landon is different than me. He has a different background. You know, you grew up in a different part of the world than me. Uh, we have different opinions, and I, I don't super like you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, he's like, likewise. Yeah, he's throwing it right back. Um, so, you know, we see the fact that we're going to disagree on some things, and that disagreement can lead to us feeling like, Landon, now you stand in that corner right there. So then, this is what we think is totally possible, that Landon can be over there, and I can just be over here, and for most people, they just think, that's totally fine. Like, he can do his, like, what's wrong with this? Because, you know, we both believe in Jesus. We both have a Bible. We can read the Bible. We can learn what God said. We both have YouTube. We can listen to sermons. Uh, like, what, what is the problem with us being separate? 
And, um, and this is something that, that Western culture has believed more and more, this idea of like self, you know, following God by yourself. And the Bible just doesn't talk about it at all in this way. And what should be happening, you know, because once there's this distance, I'm telling you guys, once you have distance, then it's so much easier for me to be like, man, I, now I don't even like Landon's hoodie, you know? And like, I don't like that he's wearing, you know, those sandals and like, it's, you know, it's March, dude. Like, what is going on? You know, we just start making up things because of the distance. But what should be happening is that as soon as we're near, then we can actually have conversations and we can say, hey, you know what, Landon? Like, I know that you and I disagree about this topic, but um, I, I want to understand why you think what you think. Tell me a little bit more about, like, you know, where did that concept come to you? Or, or what in your life led you to that belief? And, and, you know, what are the things that led you to, to thinking the way that you think? And like, even in this illustration, which is, you know, hypothetical, this isn't real. Even in the illustration, I feel the room changing right now <laughs> because I'm asking questions instead of pointing my finger at him. And, and the reason unity is important is because one, unity builds a space where God's presence dwells. And, and by us saying, hey, we're not going to agree on everything, but we want to be in unity with one another because we are brothers in Christ, that invites God's presence. But the second reason, and what we're after tonight, is because when we're actually in unity, um, it, it allows the fact that, you know, Landon needs me, and I need Landon. We need each other. And when we're separate because of our disagreements, we actually aren't able to be what we need to be for each other. And that's the title of the message tonight. We need each other. We need each other. That's why unity is so important. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. We need, yeah, more, more encouragement for Landon. It must be nice. Like, you just stood there. I did all the work, and they clapped for you, you know? <laughs> Um, all right, so we need each other. And uh, three things we're going to talk about from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Paul says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given. When he uses that word grace, he's talking about gifts, spiritual gifts. And so our first point of the message tonight is that we each have a gift, but grace was given to each one of us. We each have a gift. And, and when Paul uses the specific words, each one, that's his way of saying that we're all given all different kinds of gifts. A grace was given to you that was not given to me, that was not given to the next person. Different grace, different gifts are given to each one of us. And if we have a gift, we're supposed to give that gift to the church. That's, that's the purpose of you having that gift. And, um, and so you receive it from God. Think about it literally like a box, like a birthday present when you were a kid and, and it's wrapped. God gives you that gift and then your job is to give that gift to the church. And then the church unwraps it and that's where you see it come to fruition. But if you don't give that gift to another person, you know what happens? It's just never unwrapped. It's not that you don't have the gift. The gift is in your hands, but because you haven't given it to the church, it's never opened. And, you know, so many times, especially at church, we, we tend to focus on the gifts of the leaders, the gift of the pastor, right? Like how Eddie preaches or how Danny and Donica lead worship, whatever the gifts of the leaders are, that tends to be so much in the focus. And obviously, 
Leaders have gifts and we should be using it, but everyone has a gift. I don't wanna build NLYA based off my gifts, guys. Like, I want this to be so much bigger than my gifts. I want it to be about the fact that we each have a gift and my dream for this group is that there would be a generosity of self among us. That we would, we would always be positioned towards giving of ourselves. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you've ever been like, you know, I know pastors say that I have a spiritual gift, but I don't know what it is. And you're like, well, maybe there's like some online quiz I can take and that'll tell me what it is. Look, you want to know what your gift is? Well, you don't really have to even know what it is to use it. Because if you just walk in the room and you say, tonight I'm going to give of myself, however that pans out, your gift will start getting unwrapped. You just have to be generous with yourself, with your time, with your energy, with everything that you are, just just giving that to others. I'm telling you, your gift will show itself. And then how how did we get this gift? Um, It's because of what Jesus did. That's how we have these gifts. Um, That's what he jumps into when he continues in verse 8 saying this. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Whoa, whoa, what are we talking about here? That is like, that's such a confusing, like up and down, descended, up, down. Like, this is one of the most debated passages in the whole book of Ephesians. And um, honestly, I would love to just geek out the rest of the message, but I don't think that would be as, as enjoyable for everyone in the room. So I just want to share some main points about what, what's Paul even getting at here? Like, why is, he, why is he doing what he's doing? Well, you know, the first thing he does, therefore it says, what he's doing is he's referencing Psalm 68. And Paul does something that's super rare here in that he doesn't quote Psalm 68, he references it. This is really, really not common in the New Testament. When they would reference the Old Testament, they'll actually say what it said. And here Paul mostly says what it says, but then he changes the last part of that verse. And and I think there's a really, really awesome reason why he's doing that. Um, And so let's go back to the original Psalm. Psalm 68, verse 18 says this. You ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And even going back to the psalm, you're like, I, what? What are we talking about here? And so here, here's what that means. And to the Jewish listeners, this would have been a lot easier to understand. They're saying, God is the you. You ascended on high. That is, that's a way of saying God triumphed in victory. When, when it says that he ascended on high, that's a reference to him as king ascending to his throne. So when kings go into battle with other nations and they actually fight the battle and the king gets killed, when you lose the battle, you don't get to go back to the throne. You stay on the battlefield dead, but if you triumph in victory, you get to be ascended again. You go back to your throne. So they're saying God is the one who triumphs in victory. Then it says, leading a host of captives in your train, um, like in your train, like in your wake, there's, there's a bunch of captives. They're saying, you triumphed over our enemies, and now there's, it's like the prisoner of war idea. Like, there are people captive because God has triumphed over our enemies, and then you receive gift, um, gifts among men. That's him saying that God receives the spoils of war. So when they would conquer a nation, all the treasures of that nation would now belong to the people of Israel. So God triumphed in victory 
over his enemies and he received the spoils of war. And Paul only changes that last part because in Ephesians, you notice he says, and he gives, he gives gifts to men. He doesn't receive them from men. He gives them. That's the difference between what he's quoting and then what he's referencing. What Paul is saying is just like God in the Old Testament, when he would lead the people of Israel to triumph, just like God did that in the Old Testament, Jesus triumphed in victory. Jesus triumphed in victory over sin and death and over our enemies, which specifically in Ephesians, he talks about them as those spiritual forces of darkness, the principalities, the rulers, the authorities, all these words to talk about those spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus triumphed in victory over his enemies, and then what he did is he gave gifts to his people. So when Jesus wins the war, he doesn't keep the gifts for himself, He's, he gives that to his people. So the reason you and I have spiritual gifts, things that God has given to us to give to the church, it's because of that. It's because Jesus triumphed in victory over the spiritual forces of darkness, and now we've been given that gift. And then uh, going back to verse 9, it says this, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and it puts lower regions, comma, the earth. Just so you know, that's interpretive, meaning um, the translators of, the, of this version of the Bible, they, they're like, well, we don't know exactly what this phrase is, so we're going to pick one, and then we're going to translate it that specific way. So what that translation is saying, that he descended means that he came to earth. So he left heaven, came to earth. The problem with that is that the grammar really doesn't allow it. The grammar is, is always pointing towards the phrase that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And that's a scary thought for translators because the lower parts of the earth is a different way of saying the underworld, um, Hades, hell. And, uh, and so because we're uncomfortable, we're like, what in the world does that mean? That's why people pick different interpretations. But the grammar would lead us to believe that Paul is saying that he descended to the lower parts of the earth which is the place where all people at this time would have understood that's the place where the principalities, the rulers, the authorities, these spiritual forces, that's where those forces dwell. So this is, this is where they lived, and Jesus descended to that place. And, um, you know, the problem with that concept is because it seems to contradict what Jesus said to that thief on the cross when he said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. So it's like, well, hold on, what's going on here? Like, Jesus dies, does he go to paradise, or does he, does he go to Hades or the underworld to, to, to you know, because of, he descended into the lower parts of the earth? So after I, I had those two thoughts, then, then I started thinking, well, then it must be symbolic. It must be symbolic that Jesus symbolically went to, you know, the lower parts of the earth, and, and he showed them that he has victory over the spiritual forces of darkness, but then I'm like, well, that doesn't work either because I believe that Jesus really is on the throne, not symbolically on the throne. I believe he actually is on the throne. And so if I believe he ascended, how can I believe that it's symbolic when he descended? So it, it's kind of one or the other, however you want to interpret that, but you need to be consistent. And, and so that's where um, I, I found that 1 Peter chapter 3, which is the only other place in the New Testament that speaks of this concept, um, First Peter says it this way, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. As he's alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In prison. And I think that's consistent with the idea from Psalm 68 because he's, he's proclaiming to the prisoners of war, basically. Because he's won the battle, he's going and proclaiming to those spirits that are in prison. And uh, I love how Paul says it in Colossians chapter, th- chapter 2 as well, where he says, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, those exact same spirits, and put them, on, put them to open shame. To put, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, talking about Jesus. So he's putting those spiritual forces of darkness to open shame when he proclaims to them. So what, what's happening here, and, and here's the way I'm interpreting what's being said here, is that as Jesus is headed to paradise, because you know hell, Hades, isn't going to control Jesus in any way. It has no authority over him. But he's headed to paradise. So let me illustrate it this way. Congratulations, this side of the room. You guys get to be paradise, all right? So, woo, let's hear it for paradise. (laughs) And then I'm so sorry, everybody over here. You guys get to be hell, all right? Um, So so Jesus dies on the cross, and then, you know, he's no longer in the flesh. Now he's in the spirit. And then the spirit of Christ heads over here to the underworld, and he's in front of all the spiritual forces of darkness. Okay, and, and he's, he's, gonna head up, he's gonna head over there. But on the way there, he kind of makes this pit stop. And for what purpose? To proclaim in front of the spirits of darkness that they've lost. He's standing in front of them saying, look, all of you guys, you thought you were gonna take my people from me. You thought you had ultimate authority over me. You thought you won when I died on that cross. But I'm here to tell you, you have none of that. My people will be my people, and I will be with them, and they will be with me. And so he's proclaiming that over them, and in that sense, you see how he puts them to open shame, like Colossians says, right? Like they have no authority, no power, and then he heads over to paradise, and then he's like, hey, thief, remember I told you I'd be here today, you know? And in that sense, that's kind of my way of understanding it, that he's not going there to be bound. He's going there to proclaim to those spirits in prison that he has won the victory, And so he ascends in victory after, um, and he ascends to his throne, Jesus Christ triumphant. But it also means that he descended to proclaim that to the spiritual forces of darkness. So we each have a gift because Jesus did that. Because Jesus did all that, we each have a gift. And that's why we need each other. We need each other because each one of us has a gift. Second thing I want to talk about tonight. We each have a gift and... Our leaders equip us for ministry. Our leaders equip us for ministry. That's how he continues in verse 11, saying, you know, Jesus did all this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We need each other, (laughs) for sure, And we also need leaders. We need leaders, too, in the church of Jesus Christ. And here are some of the leaders that that God's going to mention. And and here's the way that he's gifted specific leaders to lead the church. I I know that some of these words make people uncomfortable today to hear some of the words that were just listed in that verse. And so they basically just avoid this topic altogether. Like, we're just going to skip it. We're just going to call everyone just leaders in the church. And we're not even going to find out like what is he even talking about when he says apostles, prophets, all these things. But I really, 
I really don't want to miss out on anything the Holy Spirit wants to do. I don't want to miss out. So if he's revealed this in a specific way, I'd like to know what it is that he's talking about. So let me just present some important thoughts on these giftings in particular. All right, the first one is apostles. Let's talk about apostles. Who are the apostles? Apostles were the 12. There's the 12 apostles plus Paul. Paul is the bonus apostle who Jesus calls. And um, these guys had an apostolic authority that the world has yet to see anything the likes of. Okay, see, when they, when they, when someone was healed by an apostle, it wasn't like they prayed for them and then they were healed. It's they walked up to that person and they said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And then the person did stand up and walk. And this is important because, you know, Jesus had performed signs and wonders. And now that Jesus had left, he says, I'm going to send to them my spirit. That's why they wait in the upper room. Then at Pentecost, they receive the Holy Spirit. And by them performing, performing that level of signs and wonders, what the people witnessing are saying is they're like, oh, that really is Jesus's people. Because just like Jesus did those things, these guys are now doing that. And so it's an affirmation of the Holy Spirit saying, these are my apostles. These are the ones I'm sending. And they also were a part of what I've, what I've called the rolling out of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember when we studied in the book of Acts and Paul is in Ephesus, he shows up and there's people who believe in Jesus, but they had yet not yet received the Holy Spirit. So then Paul lays his hands on them and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, I see a rolling out of the Holy Spirit. It's like the believing and then the receiving of the Holy Spirit, that's happening through those 13 apostles. And those 13 people are the people who wrote the New Testament. So what they, those letters they wrote were extremely authoritative in the church because that's the scripture we have here today, even the, the book we're studying. So for that group of people, let's call them apostles with a capital A, okay? That's not, I'm not saying that's how the Bible says this. That's just for us to understand the topic. Apostles with a capital A, I believe that's the 13 people in the New Testament and I, I don't think that, I, I do believe there are apostles today, but I don't think they're apostles with a capital A anymore. Honestly, if, if someone had that level of you know, authority, I think it would be very, very popular and we would be able to see that. And also when they would speak, we'd be like writing it down and being like, let's add this to the New Testament. Because if they had that level of authority, I'd want to hear from God in that way. So I, I don't think there's any more apostles, capital A, but inside the New Testament itself, there are more people who, who get that word. They, they're called apostles. For example, Barnabas is called an apostle, and also Junia. This is Roman chapter 16, where she's called an apostle, that the works that she's doing is also of that level. She has the gifting of an apostle. So even though those people didn't write books of the New Testament, there's a way for the gifting to exist without it having to be apostle with a capital A. And um, an apostle just means one who is sent. That's what it literally means. And that's why it makes sense that Paul and the 12 are the apostles because they have, you know, they, they experience ministry, they're called by Jesus, and then they're sent out to plant all these churches. And this church, New Life Church, is, you know, the church plant of a church plant of a church plant of a church plant. And you can date it all the way back to the work of the apostles. And it, because they were sent out. And so today, we don't really use that word, but you know, I think we use the term missionaries these days, and really what a missionary is is an apostle. They have to have that gifting, that they, they go and they pioneer. That's a different word you could say, that they can pioneer the work of God, just show up in some town and just start something. That's a gifting. 
Um, my dad's a missionary, and I believe he has this gifting. He's an apostle because he, he left his home com- country of the United States, and he shows up in Mexico in a foreign country, and somehow, like, he learns the language, and which anyone can learn a language, but, but then to see the way the culture embraced him and the way he embraced the culture, I'm just telling you guys, like, I lived, I lived in this, and that's not of my dad. That's beyond him. That's a gift that God gave him, and, and in that sense, he's an apostle, and that gift is still alive and well in the church today. Then he uses the word prophets. So um, to distinguish in the same way, prophets with a capital P would be a reference to those who wrote the Old Testament. All those guys who, who had you know, visions from God, words from the Lord, and they would write down what they heard from God, and that's how we have the Old Testament. And it was a big deal to, to be a false prophet back then. If you said, God said this, and you were wrong, we killed you. That's what happened in the Old Testament. You were stoned. And so um, it was a really, really big deal to, to say that you were a prophet in the Old Testament. And it involved speaking on behalf of God. And sometimes as they would speak on behalf of God, they would also foretell what was to come. They would say, this, this is where it's headed. This is what's going to come. You know, seven years of this, seven years, whatever. Like all these different stories that we have in the, New Test- or, sorry, the Old Testament of these prophets but then when we get to the New Testament, you, could, you would think it's just so easy to just be like, and then all those capital B prophets, like, that's it, that's the end of it. Now we're in the New Testament, we have apostles. Like, we don't need prophets, we got the apostles. And yet, um, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, he says, don't despise the gift of prophecy. He's, he's already referencing the fact that because the church had the Old Testament at the time, there had this sense of like, well, we, we heard what the prophet said, so we don't need to hear from God through people anymore. And he and Paul's saying, you're actually missing out if you do that. You're missing out on what I want to do through the gift of prophecy. Because in the New Testament, we're told not to despise it and that God still wants to speak things through people. And, and the purpose of why they're going to speak is to build you up. They're going to encourage you. They're going to comfort you. And God is going to speak through them to you. But we're also told in the New Testament that we can test it. That there's no, we don't have to be like, oh, you're wrong. Let's go, you know, let's go outside. I'm going to stone you to death. Like that's, that's no longer in the new covenant. We're just told to test it. It's such a, a beautiful place where God's saying, I still want this happening in my people. And, and so, you know, when, when someone comes up to me and they name themselves a prophet, uh, I, I want to listen because if it's from God, I want to receive that. Um, but if that makes you nervous, maybe some of that tension is because of the distinction I just made. That if people think they're prophet with a capital P, then I get all nervous because I'm like, wait, you think like you're that level of authority? Well, then again, let's start writing all this stuff down and we can make this book bigger. And, and I'm not in favor of that. But just because I don't believe there's prophets at that level doesn't mean I don't believe that God's still speaking through people. And I want to make sure that we are still allowing the space for God to do that. That there would be apostles, that we could send out apostles from this group. And we could, we could have people speaking prophecy in this group. Then the next category is the evangelists. And interestingly enough, the evangelists are people who continued the work of the apostles. Uh, today, we normally talk about evangelists as the itinerant person. The person who goes from this church to that church, right? Like, if, you, if you're from the South, they would have like revival meetings. And what would happen at a revival meeting? There would be an evangelist who would come to town and, and they would preach. But uh, the evangelist kind of continued the work of the apostles. So Paul would start a church and then the evangelist would continue to spread the good news of Jesus. 
Then the last two words that are mentioned here are shepherds and teachers. And shepherds is the term pastor. It's the same word. Um, you can use either one. Um, but honestly, in, in our day, we took that word pastor and we just like made that everything. Pastor equals any sort of church leader, but the New Testament doesn't really speak about that. There's definitely some overlap between some of the, the words for church leaders. But um, the word pastor means shepherd, meaning that you oversee a flock. Um, a portion of God's family and that you're going to oversee that and you're going to care for the flock and it also the word includes the idea that one of the main ways that you care for the flock is teaching so shepherds and teaching and that's because of that connection there are many people who believe when they read Ephesians chapter 4 that the shepherd teacher is one in the same person and I've heard that many times. And, uh, you know, when, you, when I did a, a deeper dive, that's because the grammar implies that there's a relationship be, between the two. But the, the implication is not that they're the same person. The implication is that teachers is a subset of shepherds. So what's being said is that all shepherds need to teach, but not all teachers are shepherds. So if someone's a pastor, they have to have the ability to open God's word and teach it. But this is a beautiful thing because that's God saying there are people who have the ability to teach, but maybe they don't have the gifting to be a pastor, to oversee a flock. And I've seen this to be true so much in my years of ministry. There are people who have the gift to teach, but they don't have the gift of overseeing, like of shepherding an entire flock. And what I love about that, the way the grammar is, is that says, hey, there's room for you in the family of God too. There's a space for you to be used for God's glory. But the main point of these verses is that the leaders are supposed to equip who? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I know a lot of people have life verses. Maybe you have a life verse. Um, this is my ministry life verse. This is what I always come back to every single year as, as I'm a pastor and I, I do the work of equipping the saints. I'm always trying to ask myself, but in what way did I equip you guys for ministry? Because I can minister to you, right, through the preaching of God's word, through many different ways. I can minister to you, but I'm always thinking, in what ways am I equipping you to do the ministry? Because that's really my job. And instead of just thinking it's all about me doing the work, really, I need to always, and I always try to check myself, what else can I do to equip others to do the work of ministry? Because Tuesday nights should be a ministry night for all of us. It really should. It should be a ministry night for all of us. And, you know, I, I would love it if in the next year we could shift our thinking from thinking that we attend Tuesday nights to, to thinking that we are a part of Tuesday nights. Yeah. And, and I know for some of you, you're like, man, that just feels so far off. Again, go back to what I just said. Just give of yourself. If you come in here with a generosity of self, you watch it. It'll become ministry. This is how God works. He gives all of us gifts. And if we just submit ourselves to him and say, Holy Spirit, use it in however way you want, then it becomes ministry. And Tuesday nights is going to be about the ministry of all of us. And as a leader, I'm supposed to equip you to be able to do that. And our leaders equip us for ministry. And then the last thing that's said in this passage is this. Love is the end game. Love is the end game. Verse 13 through 16, to finish the passage for tonight, says this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, human plans and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, there it is, in love. So that it builds itself up in love. Love is the end game. What, what's being said here, verse 13, he's saying, um, here's what you're, what you're not supposed to be. Sorry, no, here's what you are supposed to be, that we would reach the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Don't get tripped up by that manhood. No, we're not all supposed to turn into a men. It's saying we're supposed to turn into like the adult version of the church, not the child version of the church, the adult version of the church, which is mature. And we know that because the next verse he's saying, this is what you're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to be children and children are immature. And when, in, when you apply that concept of immaturity to the church, what happens is that any doctrine can just get spoken. Any wind of a doctrine, everyone's like, oh, we don't know what, what to believe is what's up from down. And it's like, that's a sign of immaturity because when you're gr- rooted and grounded in God's love, that when the wind comes, you're just not shaken. And that doesn't mean you're not like, okay, we got to consider this, but you're just not shaken to the core when you reach that level of maturity. So that's verse 14. Then we get to verse 15 and he tells us, okay, so we're supposed to be mature. Got it. How? (laughs) How do we reach that level of maturity as a church? Well, he says it really clearly right there. Rather, so not that stuff, do this, speaking the truth in love. How do we mature? We speak the truth in love. And I know, I know people who know how to do this and I know people who don't. And the people who do know how to do this are the people in my life who I consider mature Christians. It's a sign of maturity to be able to do this. And honestly, I think the church has settled for two lesser versions of that sentence. And I see these two versions more often than I see what is said, which is that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. I see, you know, lesser version number one, which is speak the truth at all costs. Speak the truth at all costs. There, there are people in the body of Christ who think that the end game is truth. That my, my whole, the, all this is just for people to hear me say what is true. And I don't care if you're ready to hear it. I don't care if it hurts you. I have no consideration if, you're, if it's time. If, if I, I don't even care my tone and how I say it because my job is to speak the truth at all costs. That's not the calling. That's not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, so speaking the truth at all costs is not the the version we wanna follow. And the second version that's out there is speak love without regards to the truth. (laughs) Speak love without regarding the truth. And ultimately that's kind of a, you know, an oxymoron because it isn't loving to disregard the truth in someone's life. Uh, if you really want to love them, like truth has to be in there. That's, that's part of the conversation. And love isn't naivety. It's not like turning a blind eye to things. Love isn't tolerance either. Love without truth, all it is is just confusion. Yeah. You guys remember when we talked about um, dating last summer? And, and I talked about like how we need to be honest with each other. And so if someone asks you out and you're like, uh, yeah, sure. And then like, do you want to go out again? And you're like, no, I don't. But you're like, yeah, okay, let's go out again. And it's like, what are you doing there? You're being dishonest. 
because you're refusing to speak the truth because you feel like it's not loving. And I'm telling you, where does that road lead? Are you just gonna like marry that person? <laughs> like even though you don't want to? No, like at some point, you're just gonna finally say the truth and you've actually compounded the pain for that person. Okay, so in the, in the name of love, you hurt them more. It's just confusion, it's not right. And so we want to speak in love and it's the right heart, but the wrong delivery. And so we want to land where the scriptures lead us. If we can speak the truth in love with each other, unity will win. Unity will absolutely win. And the, the original word for speak um, is actually quite, uh, quite bigger than the English word for speak. So when it says speak the truth in love, we hear it and we think it's literally like words, right? We're gonna say words in truth. Um, they're speaking true words in love. Um, but the word is, is wider than that. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a better way to understand it when we say what we're supposed to do is live the truth in love. Not just the words. Of course the words are included, but we're supposed to live that out. That by my very actions, you would sense what is true and you would sense the love behind it. Live the truth in love. Because bottom line, guys, there is going to be conflict among us. That is unavoidable with humans, and we're all humans here, so there's going to be conflict. And, and I, it just breaks my heart so much when people you know, join a group like NLYA or any other church group, and then everything's going great, and you're loving it, and then suddenly you hit a, a, a point of conflict with someone, and then it's just like, boom, I'm out of here. i got to go find something else. I'm just trying to warn you right now. Conflict is going to happen. The question is, what are we going to do when we hit that point of conflict with a brother or a sister? So I want you to think about this phrase when you come into a point of con a conflict with a brother or sister. Ask yourself those two questions. First, what is true? Seriously, like if you're at a point of conflict, just slow down, get away from all the, you know, the high emotions and just be like in, in a quiet place, ask yourself, what's true? Like what, what maybe am I just kind of like conflating and what's actually happening here? What is true? And then second question, what would be loving for me to do? What would be loving for me to do? And if you're willing to ask yourself those two questions, you will be blown away at what the Holy Spirit does through you. I'm telling you, I've, I've seen people ask one question and not the other, but the people who ask both those questions, all I see is just Holy Spirit pouring out of them. Where it's just like, remember, it's the overflow of the Holy Spirit. That's all that happens when you speak the truth in love. And if we can foster a healthy environment here, our, this body will grow. That's just how it happens, when, it, when it's healthy. And uh, it's just so fascinating to me that even though we are the church, we are the body of Christ, Paul is giving us instructions on how we're supposed to relate to each other because it's possible for us to not do it the right way. So just because you're saved, just because you're welcomed in the family of God doesn't mean this is working. We have to do things in order for this to work. We could be a childish group of believers or we could be a mature group of believers. And if we're mature, the sign of that maturity will be the love that grows in this group. If a year from now, I stand here and we have a strong sense that the love inside this group has increased in our relationships, our brothers and sisters in Christ, I guarantee you that our maturity will follow that. We will be a more mature group of people. And when we're mature, that means we're healthy and that means we're just calling in other people to join us. When every part does its job. 
See, there's a limit to how much I can do, guys. There really is. He says, when every part is functioning properly, even if I'm functioning properly, which I'm not always functioning properly, even if I am, if you're not, it's not gonna happen here. You're gonna stunt the growth. You're not gonna be able to be in unity with all the people. That's why I'm trying to say, we need each other. I need you. You need me. You need the person to your left. You need the person to your right. We need each other because we each have a gift and we're gonna be equipped to do the ministry ourselves knowing that the end game is love. And if we need each other, then we need more time with each other. We need more time with each other. And if you were here last summer, that was the heart behind what we called summer hangs. If you weren't here, let me just explain it real quick. It was basically this list of like 40 things that we were just gonna do this summer. And you could sign up for whichever ones you wanted to do. It ranged from, you know, lunch at in and out or we went whitewater rafting or, you know, there was trivia night. There were so many awesome things that happened. And the heart behind it was so that we could get to spend more time together because how are we going to build brothers and sisters in Christ relationships if we're not spending time together? So tonight, I just wanted to let you guys know a little bit of what, what is to come because we saw all that happened through summer hangs and how that began friendships that need to happen. We've always had it on our heart that we want to create intentional community here. So what is to come is we're gonna be starting what we're gonna call NOYA or Young Adults Crew. And crew as in, I have a crew. You're, you know, I belong to this crew, this is my crew. And it's gonna be a thing where you're gonna be able to sign up and we're gonna start it this summer. You're gonna be able to sign up for the summer and say, for the summer, because I know, you know some people move and like, it's kinda hard to say like, for a year I'm gonna do this, anything, really. So we're just trying to say, maybe for the summer, I'm gonna commit and I'm gonna join one of these groups, a crew, and they're gonna be my crew for the summer. And every single week, or as much as we can this summer, we're gonna have meals together, we're gonna go hang out, we're gonna do fun things, we're gonna find out what people do for fun, and, and it's gonna allow you guys to have that smaller environment instead of what happens here, which is our large group on Tuesday night. And in and, and, and a few weeks, I'm gonna talk a bunch more about what these crews are gonna look like and, and be very specific about what it should be, what it shouldn't be, and all that. But tonight, I just want you to hear the heart behind it. And the heart behind it is, if we can foster a community of unity, then we'll be able to grow in a healthy way. And, and if we can get there, that's, that's when it's so much easier to invite someone in when you feel like, I'm not just inviting you into this thing that happens on Tuesday nights that might be like super different than anything my friends ever experienced. It's a lot easier to say, hey, what, if, what about for the summer? Would you wanna hang out with us here? And just, just giving of ourselves. Because when we give of ourselves generously, then the gifts start to unwrap. And we're gonna get to see what God wants to accomplish. So more on that to come for sure, but just wanted to let you guys know that that's something ahead for us. All right, let me, let me pray and then we'll finish here tonight. Father, thank you for the work of your son and thank you that he has triumphed over evil. <laughs> thank you that because of what he's done, we now have a gift to give. And uh, Lord, for those who, who feel like they don't have a gift, Lord, would you encourage them? Would you exhort them to just give of themselves and maybe just bring that to mind right now, Lord? What are the ways that we can be generous with ourselves? How can we give of ourselves to others? And Lord, may this be a place that's not built on the gifting of any leader may be a place where ministry happens, the mutual ministry of all of us as, as believers, as 
We all have a gift. And, and Lord, help us to grow in love. Of course, we want to speak the truth, but may it be that we do that in love. And for the times we fail, God, help us to repent. Help us to see it quickly and ask for forgiveness quickly that we might be able to be in unity with one another as we live out the truth in love. May it be so, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand up together and let's worship the Lord.